Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. Welcome aboard a Captain's Mindset podcast where we believe that everyone has the potential to become the captain of their own life. I'm your host, Kyle Freiberger, and after spending the majority of my life in the pursuit of becoming an airline captain, I realized that true happiness and satisfaction came from something much deeper than career success. At the age of 34, I took a leap of faith, left my perfect job to become an entrepreneur. This podcast is my way of helping people who feel stuck in life or even those who have achieved success but still feel unfulfilled. Together, we'll explore how to become the captain of your own life and a better leader for the people around you. I'm not perfect and I don't pretend to be. That's why this podcast is filled not only with my life lessons, but also with insights from other successful leaders in business and in everyday life. My goal is to help you unlock your potential and create a positive impact on the world around you. So buckle up and get ready to take control of your life. If you find value in this podcast, please subscribe and share it with other like-minded individuals. Thank you for joining me and I hope you enjoy this episode of a Captain's Mindset Podcast. Hey, hello everybody. Welcome to another episode of Captain's Mindset Podcast. Uh, Joining me, special guest today, Jimmy Sony. Jimmy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Kyle. I really appreciate it. Awesome, man. So if you if you don't mind giving the listeners maybe the two-minute Cole, Cole's Note version of who you are, just so that everybody can get acquainted with you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you know, it's always, you sort of never know where to begin with these things, but <laughs> I, 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 I'm a dad. I live in New York. Um, I'm an author. I've had a bunch of different books that I've done and uh, it's sort of the, the, like I've always done my books as, as somewhat of side hustles, right? So I'm always kind of doing speech writing or ghost writing during the day and writing these books kind of in the mornings and on weekends. And my last book, which is the reason you and I connected, was called The Founders. And it's the story of a company that probably everybody listening has interacted with in some way, which is PayPal. But it's the story of that company when it first got started between the years of 1998 and 2002, when the people creating it were names that are household names today. Mm-hmm. Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, Reid Hoffman, the founders of, of another company that your listeners are probably familiar with, YouTube. All three founders came out of the PayPal alumni group. If you've ever looked up a Yelp review, you could thank the, the folks at PayPal. That was another couple of alums who created Yelp. Um, so on and on. And basically, it was this incredible this incredible community of engineers, business folks, leaders who worked at this one company. And I was became sort of obsessed with like, well, how, it, how did that happen? Like, I get that like later on, you all went off to like launch rockets and change automotive engineering. But what was it like when you were getting started? That's me and the book. Mm-hmm. So it's basically all of the behind the scenes, like most businesses, right? Not a lot of people will ever know the business until it's already become successful. And, you know, without diving into the rabbit hole already, but, uh, you know, one of the biggest things I, I think that <clears throat> is cool about talking uh, specifically about PayPal and, and, and um, you know, any of these other companies, Yelp and, and YouTube uh, is you know, all of the things that we're probably going to talk about now are going to be things that are all about the process and the journey of those companies becoming of what they became. And for anybody who wants to learn about how to build a company or or how to be an effective leader, uh, right away, it's a lot of, a lot of who you go to or, or the resources that you're, you're learning from, you got to make sure that you're, you're taking the resource and learning from the start, not from, you know, step number 100, where they started to become somewhat famous. So diving right in, um, what was the overarching theme when you were writing this book? What was your overarching um, 
what was your the overarching concept or or thing that stuck out the most about PayPal and its success over the years? Well, that's a great that's a great question. I actually have never thought about it in in quite those terms. What I would say is, um, I'll go with something that actually just came to mind, which is scrappiness, and and I think this is one of those qualities that's probably underrated. It's, you know, it, it, you could sort of look at this group of people and say, wow, what an intelligent group of people, mm -hmm. right? Or you could say, what a creative group of people. But there are a lot of intelligent and creative groups of people who built dot-coms in 1999 that didn't survive through the year 2000, right? When the dot-com bubble burst. So to my mind, like if someone said, what's the key thing, the key ingredient that kept the company surviving when so many other companies went under? And I would say more broadly for your listeners, like what is a key quality of leadership at every level of command that matters. I would say scrappiness is is one of them, right? It, and 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 scrappiness is interesting because it's like a it's a fuzzy mix of a lot of different things, right? Yeah, it's a certain amount of like intuition. It's like just a little bit of hustle, like a lot of elbow grease, right? But I would actually argue that it's the cocktail that made this company successful. And I would argue that if you look back at the at the history of most successful startups. The, the, the ability to have a leader, particularly leaders who are scrappy right from the jump, is super important because it also draws other scrappy people to the startup. And it keeps you surviving at various moments when you feel like you're going to go under, which happened to PayPal again and again and again and again and again. And so to me, the theme that, that hovers over all four years of the years that I wrote about is this incredibly scrappy group of people. So that's, that's my theme. Yeah, it's and it's funny because I, I like to catch people off guard because I don't want canned answers, right? And, and a lot of times that's what happens when people um, get the questions ahead of time. Uh, so scrappiness, digging into that a little bit more, how do you think that relates with like flexibility and adaptability or the other word that came to mind was like perseverance, like keep going. You kind of explained all, you know, kind of all of those in that word scrappiness. But if you don't mind, just expand a little bit more on with regards to those key characteristics as well. Yeah, I would say it, look, it, it's kind of there. These are like overlapping Venn diagrams, right? And there's like all these different Venn diagrams that overlap. And for me, it's, there is a part of the Venn diagram that you know, of scrappiness that is covered by, let's say perseverance, right? Mm -hmm. So like an example, a really simple example would be, you know, um, when PayPal was created, they were really successful early on but they were giving away a lot of money and there was a lot of fraud. You know, you have to be able to persevere through month after month of losing $10 million a month, then $12 million a month, and still feel like there's light at the end of the tunnel. Still feel like what you're not going to do is just close up shop, send the company back, the money back to your investors and call it a day. And so there's a certain amount of perseverance there. But the part of it that makes perseverance, I would say, different from scrappiness is you also then have to like get into the trenches and figure out how to defeat fraud. It's not just about enduring the losses. It's actually about creative problem solving joined to endurance. That's actually probably like a really useful definition of scrappiness, right? It is the ability to flexibly solve problems and endure through difficulty. And to me, that's like what, what would separate somebody who's like a really good endurance athlete, but is only going to run one kind of marathon one way, like with, with perfect, you know, hydration along the way, you've got mile markers every couple of miles versus somebody like, you know, entrepreneurship is probably more like a tough mutter, like mm -hmm. or like a tough mutter with unexpected obstacles. And that's what I felt like in a, in a different, you know, that, that's what I was writing about. I was writing about a, a situation in which this company had to overcome multiple obstacles and scrappiness allowed them to persevere, but also flexibly problem solve. And that, to me, that's like a, it, it is a different quality 
than pure just like endurance or grit. Yeah, it makes sense, man. And he, and you just tied like, I think that's another important concept right away just to uh, highlight is that, you know, any of these characteristic traits of great leadership that we're all about on this podcast, it's never about one specific above all else. And and, and real quick side note is I, I put a poll on uh, LinkedIn and I was like, what is the in your opinion, what is the number? I'm going to ask you this question, actually, but in your opinion, um, and this might coincide with scrappiness, but in your opinion, what is the number one trait of an effective leader? Oh, man. Um, and the reason I asked that question to give you some time to think while I'm, while I'm, while I'm asking it yeah. is because the, there really is like they really, really do mix together so much in order to form mm -hmm. effective leadership. It's not, you know, it, it might not necessarily be just one and there's no right or wrong answer, but there is, there is one thing that came to mind in, in this, um, you know, putting out this poll on, on LinkedIn, I've had about six or 700 people vote on it so far and it's been quite controversial, but yeah. So, so oh, there's no, funny. there's no wrong well, I answer. But... I haven't seen the poll. I was going to say, I haven't seen the poll. So I might be way out of like the, I may be way on the other end of the 670. Here's what I would say. I would say that the, like, I, I don't have a shorthand for it, but what I would say is sort of like everybody grabs a shovel. And what I mean by that is like leader, the, the best leaders I know are the leaders who are not, who, who are not too proud, not too in love with their title and and not so consumed by the aura of leadership that they forget to like they, they they never forget to like dive in edit documents they never forget to dive in and pick up a shovel and dig just like everybody else mm -hmm. right and i think and i think like particularly at startups what i came to understand in the course of doing the book is like that's actually like at a startup you don't you know the ceo is just a really it's a title but it doesn't really mean anything because the team is so small that everybody has to do everything all the time mm -hmm. And I actually think that's like what makes, I mean, I hate to say it, but that's like, you know, there's a part of leadership. There was a recent leadership change at Starbucks and it was like the Howard Schultz CEO stepped aside in favor of a new CEO. And one of the things I read online, I didn't read the whole article, but it impressed me like just a little bit was that he had spent six months like working in Starbucks, like shilling coffee, right? Like actually sort of working the front line. I think that that's really important. It takes a certain amount of being able to suspend your ego and say, it doesn't matter what the task is, it's my responsibility because I'm at the top. And I'm not, I'm not unwilling. In fact, I'm very willing to like dive in and get, you know, alongside people to do the work. Now, granted, that doesn't work in every context. And it's not like that's the thing you want all leaders doing all the time. Mm -hmm. You're you don't really want your CEO being the one who's like in front manning the cash register, but you want them to have the ability to appreciate the person that is. And that person that is doing that needs to appreciate that, that the leader themselves was like totally willing to do something like that at one point in their career. Right. And I think, I think there's something about that that's really powerful. And it's a power, by the way, that's not about like data points or charts. It's like a, it's like an intangible power that comes from knowing that the leader themselves is willing to do this work. Right. That that person will always be at every practice. There's a great scene in the documentary about the Chicago bulls and Michael Jordan, mm -hmm where Michael Jordan says basically this, he says, look, I wasn't always the easiest person to be around, but every person on that team knew that I would be working harder at practices. And I, even though I was the captain of the team, I was going to be there in the mornings and I was going to be there late at night. I think there's a real power in that. That, uh, so two things that come out of that. Number one is, uh, would I gather you exp like the, the way I would conceptualize what you just said was self-awareness. 
right? Mm. The ability for a leader yeah. to continuously be aware, right? And and working in these these industries or getting your hands dirty or willing to do everything. It's like you said, it's not a tangible measurement because leadership is about influence, which there's not like you can take, you know, at the end of the day, maybe say that you know, profit's a tangible measurement, but it's really not because you you can't always relate back somebody's motivation to the inspiration of the leader. So it's this un- intangible, um, you know, influence that you have on the people around you, which is becoming the new, more modern definition of leadership, because then you can be more adaptable, flexible, you know, empathetic, you're, you're not trying to control everybody, micromanage everybody. And with today's technology, uh, everything changing the way it is, it's so much easier for people to be lazy and still get away with, you know, making some money. So um, PayPal specifically, the culture, like describe the culture of PayPal as it was going through its its building in, in the rough phases and then over time and then modern day. Like how does, how would you describe that culture? Yeah, I think... Um... There's a there's a way in which it it every everything you think you know about a startup in the in the 1990s and, and early 2000s proves to be true. There's it's a very it's around the clock place. Everyone's working seven days a week. Um, it's very intense. You constantly when even when I was interviewing people, like even today they would say to me like, oh, I can still feel the fear that we felt thinking we were going to go under the next day, right? Um, and it was the kind of place where very tight bonds were forged as a result of that duress, right? So the difficulty of building this company while the dot-com bubble is bursting, the NASDAQ is cratering, nobody thinks startups are going to be successful anymore the way they used to just a few years before PayPal started. The 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 difficulty of that actually created a lot of friendships as well. Mm-hmm. And so you could imagine this like very tight-knit team that feels like it's taking on the world with a lot of intensity in the room. And then you add to that some particularly intense characters, right? Uh, and you could sort of see what results. I, I think it's important to to expand, if you don't mind, on those connections, the relationships. And and we're talking about a time of like adversity or or chat like ultimate challenge or fear of like a company, you just never know if it's going to survive or be around tomorrow. Um, And maybe a good way to do that is like contrast that thought with like what poor leadership would have looked like in PayPal versus Mm. what, you know, the, the actual leadership kind of looked like, because I think there's a lot of leaders out there that think they have to get a, 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 their business to a specific point where they so that they can be more effective leaders versus just being an effective leader to get that business to a specific point. Does that make sense? Can you can you relate it on that? It does. It does. Yeah, it does and it's a really hard circle to square, right? Because you can understand how somebody is like like it may they may feel intense imposter syndrome as a leader because they don't feel like they've got it figured out. But I suppose one of the biggest takeaways I had from the PayPal study that I did in this book was just no, like even the smartest people in the world didn't have it figured out when they were building a business that today is worth a hundred billion dollars and is every isn't ever used in every country in the world, right? And so you look at somebody, for example, like let's take specific examples. There was a leader, Peter Thiel, who was the CEO of the company when it went public. He was the CEO at a couple different moments, and he himself didn't particularly want to be CEO. In fact, he walked away from the company at one point when he felt it was appropriate to walk away. Mm -hmm. 
And there was this moment when there's like a kind of coup d'etat. They overthrow Elon Musk. They put Peter Thiel back in as interim CEO. And right away, they start a search committee to like find a new CEO, to find a proper leader for this company, right? And it's a really interesting leadership hinge moment. Here's why. This was the era, this was described to me, this was the era when Silicon Valley didn't really have faith in its own leaders. They, they had this mantra of like, you would kind of hire the young whippersnapper type to like get the company going, and then they would hand it off to quote unquote, a professional CEO, right? Somebody who looked apart. But what happened in the course of trying to find a new leader for PayPal is that basically the many of the employees and senior lieutenants were like, look, the only person we respect is Peter. Like he's the only one that can actually unite all these various factions in the company. He knows the business cold, right? And I actually interviewed the person who got closest to the job offer. And that person actually said to me, he's like, look, I met Peter and within five minutes, it was like, this guy should be CEO. The board just needs to get him to do it, right? And so I think that people who are in positions where they've kind of quote unquote grown up with the company as a leader in any position, by the way, you don't have to be in, you don't have to, you don't have to be in the C-suite. I think maybe those people underestimate how much they know, how much their relationships add a lot of value in that role and like how, how much further that would actually go than let's say somebody who has seen it and done it before in some more senior position, right? And I saw that very vividly because it was not Peter that was trying to undermine this recruiting process. It was the people who reported to Peter yeah. who were like sabotaging these interviews and like just making it impossible for anybody to say yes to this job. But their rationale was, look, we have a person we trust. We have a person we think knows this business and he gives us a lot of rope to do our work. That's who we wanted in the top job. And okay, so now out of that, I get the idea that relationships and, and connection again is so important. So how, well, let me ask you this, like like what in, you know, throw it a, ball, a ballpark figure, but what percentage of success of a company is based upon the relationships that are within that company? Oh, I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not any kind of like organizational design expert or anything, but I got to believe it's like close to a hundred percent. Right. Um, and, and here's, and here's what I would say, here's why. And actually there's a bigger thought buried within this, right? The, the reason is like dysfunctional companies are often dysfunctional because of relationships, not usually because of product issues, mm -hmm. right? Like you could have both, but it's more often the case that the product issues flow from having a dysfunctional culture, Right. And you kind of have the situation where like people are backbiting, they're all fighting each other. No, you know, there's a lot of like palace intrigue, a lot of like whatever. And that just like infects everything else that happens at the company. And it, I, I found that, that yes, there was a lot of that at PayPal, but they had enough pressure and they were under enough difficulty that the team bonded together to get through it. Right. But the, the second part that makes you, the second thing about what makes your question interesting is I actually found that like doing this research helped me to understand how important it is to like have a relationship with your peers as opposed to like mentors. Meaning in a way you're like colleagues at your level are, can have a more powerful impact on your career than somebody that you report up to, right? Or that you salute to. Because it turns out that like when those people go on and do other things in their life or when they need help or when they're looking for somebody to hire for some role 10 years down the line, they're not gonna call the person who was their boss. They're actually gonna call the person who was their peer, mm -hmm. right? And I found that part of the after effect of PayPal, the reason that these companies continued to come out of this alumni group was because the peer bonding was really strong and there wasn't actually this sense of hierarchy that exists in other places. Yeah, a lot more sense of team and less, um, you're my employee, you're my 
manager, you're my boss, like this position of, and I talk a lot about that on, on my social media and my podcast, but, um, and, and maybe, maybe I'll ask it instead of talk about it. Cause I, again, I really appreciate where you're going, the rabbit hole you're going down. Um, when somebody uses their position of power to get what they want, is that leadership? I don't think so. Um, and if that's not, I, mean, I think it, yeah. And if it's not, it, it, yeah, go ahead. If you don't mind expand yeah, on no, how it, you think that works. Yeah. I would say it's, 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 um, I think it's hard because like you could take somebody like Steve Jobs, right? And say he used a posi his position of leadership to achieve his desired vision for what he thought Apple products could be. Mm -hmm. At the same time, what he really did was bring the best work out of a bunch of people who, who were at the company who he hired and he would push them and they would respond and he would push them and they would respond. And he describes that a company, he says this like amazing video from years and years and years ago where he describes this process of like, I'll, I'll do the extended version of the riff because it's worth <laughs> it, right? He says that he once was a kid and he was like helping out a neighbor who had some yard work or something. And he had one of those barrels with like a spinny thing attached that you could spin. And Steve Jobs said that this neighbor wanted to show Steve something. So he said, you know, I'm going to tell you to go grab those rocks that are over there. It's like just like rough rocks, like hanging out in the yard. And he said, we're going to put these in the barrel and I'm going to spin them. And when you come back tomorrow, the rocks will be polished and smooth. And the, Steve Jobs was like, no way. Like he was a kid. And he was like, that's not going to happen. Like it's just a barrel, a metal barrel and some rocks. You can't make polished rocks out of these rocks. So the guy tosses it in the barrel. He spins it, spins it, spins it. Steve Jobs comes back the next day. He, the guy tells him to open up the barrel. And what do you know? The rocks are smooth and polished. At the end of that story, Steve Jobs says, that is often what I see, how I see a company. I take all these like, un, like these like rocks with jagged edges and stuff. We toss them in. They knock against each other. They fight. They, they whatever but we come out with smooth, polished rocks. And does that work in every context? No. Does it make for like the happiest place in the world to work? Probably not. But Apple products are revered because of that intensity, that kind of conflict. So I would say that like the, the kind of, it's, a, it's not quite an answer to your question, but I think the answer to your question is somebody with a vision can also create a culture that produces products that reflect their vision. And sometimes they've got to hit rocks against each other to make that happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was... Um... As you know, I was a, a pilot before uh, getting into leadership coaching specifically, uh, and one of the concepts that I like to to balance, and because I, I I don't think a lot of these things are black and white. I think it, it very much is is dictated by the position people are in, and that's why, you know, again, I, I can even appreciate the way that you're speaking about leadership not being black and white. But you know, when is it a time to command? When is it time to give clear direction? And when is it time to pull back as a leader and let your rough rocks clash against each other, um, right? And, and it's like, as long as they're clashing against each other with a shared common goal and purpose. Uh, and, and so that kind of brings me to the question, but how important, and it, it might sound like a rhetorical question, but I, 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 I want to ask it and then I want to, if you don't mind, expand on it, but how important is the, the, the vision and the goal in the company mm. and, and then expand on why, if you don't mind. Yeah, I would, I, I think it depends a lot on the context of the company, the industry they are in. Here's what I would say for the specific kind of company that I looked at, which is fast growth, early stage startups in Silicon Valley, right? Like I, I also have to like cop, like that's my disclaimer is like, I haven't looked at every business in the world. I've looked at a bunch of 
like I looked at a very concentrated story and then compared it to its peers. Mm-hmm. With with startups in particular, there is a quality of needing the goal, like of being okay with the goals shifting. Let me give you a specific example. When Elon Musk started the half of the company that became PayPal, the original goal was to be a financial services superstore called X.com. He bought the URL X.com and he wanted it to be where you would go if you had a mortgage, an insurance. Like if you had any financial need, anything related to money, that's where you were going to go. You were just going to go on your browser, type in X.com, right? And the idea was to unify all these services in one place so you could cut fees and cut out all the middlemen. That is very different from what PayPal became, which is a person-to-person payment system. Part of, I think, leadership within a fast-growth early-stage tech startup is appreciating that your goals might change, like, I mean, overnight if needed, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so I, I think that for the businesses that I was looking at, like the, the quality of flexibility, you have to over-index on that because your goals might have to change. At the same time, like vision and big goals are what attract recruits. They're what attract really, really, really talented people. And that was definitely true in the PayPal story. So just to maybe s- summarize this to make sure that I've got it right, and then maybe anybody listening, um, there, you know, we, we, we did talk about the, the ability to be, uh, to scrap, um, how did you describe it? Scrap, scrappy, um, like flexibility. We're talking about adaptability, all of these different things. So, um, but at the end of the day, like setting the goals and having the goals, it's not about the fact that they're never going to change it, but it is about, it is important to have that goal or that vision on a day-to-day basis. And you, at the end, you're, you're kind of talking about, cause that's what attracts, right. That That's what motivates or, and, and maybe I'll ask you this, but like, you know, that's what it seems to motivate people, attract the top talent, um, keep people believing in whatever they need to believe to keep moving forward. Is that a fair statement? That's that's totally fair, and I'll I'll put it was a better description than what I gave. But let me give a little just an added piece of of kind of thinking about it, which is, you know, if if someone's picking a place to work, particularly if it's a tech startup, or or I would say like in a, this is true probably in a lot of different industries. There's probably other places they could go where they might make more money, right? Mm-hmm. There's probably places they could go where they might you know have better quality of life, right? If you're trying to hire somebody for a startup, you're essentially telling them you're going to work harder than an average job, make less money than an average job, and it's going to be a lot more grueling, right? And so you have to promise something that is bigger than just compensation or bigger than just like a fancy title. And what I would say is like in the case of X.com, when I interviewed the people who first went to work there, the thing that drew them in on, again, this is Elon's half of the company was Elon and a vision of changing finance forever. So it was this idea, like we're going to take on JP Morgan and we're going to take on Goldman Sachs and we're going to clean their clock. We're going to do so much better than they can do. And that was enough for people to overcome what I just described, the difficulties of like low pay, long hours and a lot of difficulty, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so to me, that's what, that's part of why vision matters is it actually does, you could you could, vision could make the difference between like recruiting somebody and losing them to Google, right? If you're a startup. Uh, and I think that's really important. I think it's safe to say that Elon Musk is really good at vision, <laughs> having having uh, very strong visions. And I think that uh, 
you know, that's something that I've, I've dealt with in my like personality profile is, is it's kind of a blessing and a curse at the same time. Um, my belief system, like I can, I can decide what I want to believe and believe it so much that I don't like nothing else phases me. Um, but I also, and, and I'm speaking through this on my personal side, because I want to dig into the adaptability in your belief system again, because is it one thing to believe something so much that you keep going, but at what point do you believe that you have to pivot in your business and how does that, and maybe it comes from, maybe your answer to this might come from um, your research or personal experience, but what do you see in the company as far as knowing when to pivot and, and, and maybe it comes down to those goals and that back to that vision again, like what, maybe, and maybe the better question is, sorry, I'm rambling a little bit, but what do you think the, no, the trait right. of the leader is that helps them to pivot when they need to pivot? Yeah. And I have a, a very clear and very uh, precise answer for this, which is teammates who can call your bluff. And part of the mark of a good leader is having teammates around who are smart enough, who are capable enough, who are honest enough to tell you when you're wrong or tell you when the company is going in the wrong direction. And there is no person within the PayPal story who personifies that more than David Sachs. So I had the chance to interview and spend some time with David Sachs, you know, learn about his contribution to the company. And I would say he was like the truth teller in chief is, is a good title, right? He's the chief truth teller. He was, he was actually the head of product and then the COO. But the, the, the reason I would call him sort of the chief truth teller is that he was the person who was willing to say, listen, we have done a lot of great whiz-bang engineering things, but we are not focused on how users actually use our product. And the truth is, and this is like true of friendships, and it's also true in the workplace, how often do we hold back because we're afraid of offending somebody, even though we know when something is mm -hmm. right? The quality that David Sachs had is that he did not hold back, and he was always willing to be forthright with the things that he believed that the company was doing wrong. And I had multiple people tell me that was what's, that was part of what made the company successful wow. was David's insistence that we did, they were honest about the actual use case for their product, not the visions that they had in their head for what the product might be. And I, I will say, I think it's hard to recruit people like that. I think it's really hard to, as a leader to be okay with having people like that in the organization. But I think so many organizations need someone like that to be able to be that honest about uh, their products, about the operations, about the prospects for the company. Uh, I would, I, I would, I would go one step further and say that everybody needs in their life uh, somebody like that. And we don't, um, even myself, up until like a few years ago, I didn't truly have somebody like that. But everything, so how you know, and the, instead of going off on my tangent here, how does you know we're talking about feedback? Um, maybe expand on that trait of feedback a little bit more and how that really, uh, like, uh, you know, obviously when somebody gives feedback, the person getting the feedback has to perceive that feedback, you know, a constructive way. So talk me through the filtration system or, you know, what do you do with positive feedback or negative feedback or constructive feedback or how, you know, how do, how do, how does somebody that's listening to this, not get overwhelmed with all the feedback or how do they get proper feedback? Yeah, it's, you know, it's a great question. And I, I, I think I, I have a couple thoughts on what can be helpful 
Um, but the truth is that the, the company that I studied wasn't the kind of place that had formal feedback. <laughs> right. They just there was a there was a lot of yelling. There were a lot of group threads. There were a lot of emails. Right. It was a, it was a pretty tough environment, and it was the kind of place that like they didn't have systems for HR or systems for you know that sort of thing. You you know there were reporting lines, but there wasn't really a formal process of oh you're so and so and so I have to go through this person. Here's what I would here's what I would offer. Um, I think that. One of the things that I learned in the relationship between two people who helped to co-found the company, uh, Max Levchin and Peter Thiel, Max gives this meditation where he says that one of the things that Peter did best for him is that he sketched out the best vision of Max's life. And then like any time that, you know, there was some deviation from that, Max knew that, that Peter had a, had a head about him and had a good sense for what would work and wouldn't work. And so I think that there's like, like there's this remarkable degree of like, if you can sketch out the most ambitious vision for something before you give critical feedback, there's a quality, whether this is, by the way, this is in people and this is like also in, you know, companies, I think it changes the way that feedback is received, mm -hmm. right? Because then it, it, de it sort of depersonalizes it. Like I remember there was this one moment in the story when David Sachs is basically like, like, He's, he's really taking the team to task for this one product they have where they're trying to make money beaming over Palm Pilots work. And he goes, look, that's never going to work. It's going to be emailing money. But part of the emailing money message was, look, there are millions upon millions of people with email accounts. There are not as many people who have Palm Pilots. The company can be successful if we go after money uh, emailing money. We might not be as successful if we go after Palm Pilot money beaming. And it took some time to get the team on board with it. But his his remarks, his critique was not personal. Mm -hmm. It wasn't saying, oh, you engineer who designed that Palm Pilot thing, you're not smart and I need you. You know, it's like that wasn't it. It wasn't ad hominem. It was we're, we have this big vision of a company that's going to take over the financial world. We want to get to that. And here's a way to get to that better. It wasn't always delivered with 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 honey, right? But it was, but it worked. I, I think it's so relatable to real life because in real life, there's not a lot of process and structure on like most people don't have some sort of process or structure on um, on feedback. So even in a company like PayPal, from what I'm gathering, is even though it was a bit chaotic in their methods, the number one consistent thing was the person receiving the feedback or the people or the environment or the team receiving the feedback, they continuously had to depersonalize it, you know, uh, align it with the vision or the goals at that time in the company and really just take out the ego, take, we have that self-awareness, be able to take out that personalized approach. And I think that's super important. I think that you hit the nail on the head, man. Like the, if somebody gives you feedback, you know, if they look at you and they, they give you feedback, it doesn't matter what it's about. It's not about you as a human being. It can't possibly be because you're the only one that truly knows who you are as a human being. So if I give you feedback, it's because, you know, you're my podcast guest, or if I give my, my fiance feedback, it's because she's my fiance. Like it's her as a fiance. It's, it's me as a, you know, as somebody podcasting or as a coach or so it's, it's and that's so critical. But then when you flip that script, and you depersonalize it and you realize that every ounce of feedback is, is towards you as your whatever character you're playing in that role, then the ego comes out of it. And it's not about, oh, I'm less valuable. Oh, I'm less, you know, they're looking at me you know, like I'm a bad human being or something. It's more, no, they're, they're just giving me 
they're just telling me exactly what the problem is that I have. And I, now when I, you know, you can't fix a problem you're not aware of. So here's the problem or here's the weakness or here's the the thing I need to work on. And then you move up from there and it gets, it gets super addicting. So um, I think that's right. I would, I would add one, one other thing, which is my sense, you know, I don't, I don't have a traditional job where, because I get to be a writer. So I get to like bounce around and just look at things. Right. And sort of write about them. It's the best gig in the world if you can get it. You know, it's like one of these, I feel lucky every day. What I would say is, I think we, we, we suffer more from a lack of honest feedback than from an overabundance of negative feedback. Meaning, and I, this is just as true for me, we don't want to disappoint people. And a lot of, like, it's like, I'm, I'm like case, like I'm, case, I'm a case study in this. Like I'm such a people pleaser that sometimes I won't want to say something critical, even about a friend, even if it's delivered with love, because I am afraid that they are not going to receive it well. I, I would say that the hardest thing to find is friends who will love you and be honest with you or coworkers who believe, who share your goals and will also be direct with you. Like directness has real value. And there's a difference between someone giving you direct feedback and offending you. And I know that line isn't always totally dark, right? But I think in general, we should err on the side of wanting more criticism, of wanting more critiques, of wanting people around us who are honest enough with us to say, hey, you're wrong. Here's why you're wrong, right? And then being, being able, like as a human, to process what is true about what they said and what is not true about what they said. Uh, but I know that for me, like my closest friends are the people that I trust to tell me when I'm being an idiot. And like that is like a very – it's like you, there's not many of those – but I am beyond grateful for those people because they are the people who love me enough to know. I just like, they're like, I, like I have a friend, her name is Lauren. Her name is Lauren Rodman. She's amazing. One of the things I say to Lauren is she always pulls me toward the better angels of my nature. She knows who I am at my best. And so she can be like, you're being an idiot. You need to fix that. If you can find a way to build a company that has that kind of culture, I feel like that actually in some ways does approximate what I saw in the PayPal story which is people willing to be that honest with each other and to separate getting feedback from being offended. Yeah. I, I and I think you, you said it well there. And, and um, the one thing I'll tag on there is that the moment you get feedback and you're offended. So this is now looking at it from the other lens. Um, and we'll, we've been looking at it from both lenses, but if you're the one receiving feedback, the most important thing that you can do is not react negatively to that feedback, no matter if it's right. It doesn't matter if, if you look at that feedback and you're like, that person is completely wrong. You still have to have the self-awareness, practice the self-awareness. And it's definitely not something I'm perfect at either, but the, the more you can not react to that feedback, take that feedback, appreciate that feedback, even if it's the wrong feedback, even if it's not useful for you, it keeps that person coming back and giving you feedback. And if that person, that's a person that you want to continuously be giving you feedback, you have to make sure that you don't cut off that, um, that, that communication by reacting negatively or being offended, right? So here's my question. Empathy. How important was the trait of empathy in the different leaders that, you know, you've studied throughout your uh, uh, career? Yeah. Here, here's what I would I would say. I'd shift it just slightly, or apply it a little differently than maybe what people expect. Because I, th you know, I think it's going to be kind of hard for some people to imagine 
some of the people that I wrote about in this book as empathetic, right? That's not the word that jumps to mind when you're thinking about some of the people that I wrote about. Mm -hmm. Here's what I would say, though, and this is what people miss. What they had that made them successful was profound. I mean, you could use the word empathy for the customer using their products. And that is an interesting thing to think about, which is, you know, you can be empathetic as a person, but being empathetic when you run a business is really about thinking like in the shoes of my user, what about this is going to tick me off? What about this is frustrating? What about this fails to meet our standards, right? And one of the things that I saw in this story is such a degree of focus on putting yourself in the shoes of the user. There was this person I interviewed. I didn't put this in the book. There's this person I interviewed. And remember, this is a digital business, a tech business, right? A web business. And I was interviewing him and he said, oh yeah, this was, I, he made some comment and he said, oh yeah, this was part of these customer interviews I did. And I said, what? And he's like, oh, I like interviewed like three, 400 PayPal customers. I would fly out and I would sit with them in their living rooms while they were using our product. And I would just watch what they did. And then they would tell me what sucked and what didn't, you know, what was good and what was bad. And I said, that's amazing. And he was like, oh yeah, it was like the most powerful stuff we did was nothing fancy, no surveys, nothing flashy. I just went and sat with somebody as they were using our product in their living room and saw how they used it. And then I was able to fix things based on that basis. That requires a degree of, I call it organizational empathy. The entire organization has to be committed to doing that, right? And I think that's pretty amazing. Yeah, I, that's that feedback loop as well. It's the ability to... Uh, put yourself in somebody else's shoes without judging at all. And I think there's a difference between judging to know whether your, you know, your, your actions are right or wrong or judging whether you're trying to make the best decision or judging whether you're going to be in a relationship with somebody or work for somebody. Um, there's a very interesting balance that I think a lot of people have. It, it's very hard to, to clearly define it, uh, define the two sides, but that that judgment that you're speaking about is for purely for feedback. Uh, doesn't matter if it's good, bad, ugly. It doesn't matter. That feedback is a data collection that you can put in your pool because, and, and maybe speak to this: is did he mention at all the different types of feedback that he got? Because I'm just wondering, you know, there, obviously when you get feedback, everybody's feedbacks can be a little bit differently. How do you decide? how to take that feedback and what to change. Yeah. I mean, look, this was a company that lived online at a time when message boards were even less regulated than they are today. So they heard it all. In fact, I, I would actually, it's funny in the book, I copied and pasted like random bits of feedback from users and just stuck it in the book <laughs> just to show people a sense of how vocal and vicious it could get. Yeah. But, but to their credit, this the part of what made this company look a lot, there were a lot of banks, a lot of different players in the fintech space. What made part of what made this company successful was the ability to take critical user feedback and like move super fast to fix things, right? And I I know that there's a lot of qualities that go into that habit. Empathy is one of them. And in that context, what empathy means is putting yourself in your user's shoes enough to know that their frustrations are going to lead to your product getting worse over time and losing users over time, right? And then responding to fix that that mess. And so the, the feedback was wildly positive in some instances, and it was wildly negative and very public in others. And so it was, a, it was across the board to answer your question. Yeah, that's, that's wild. Uh, one, one common leadership trait that I, I wouldn't mind just kind of talking about is, is communication. And, and um, 
how did you find that, you know, obviously there was different leaders throughout PayPal's career and, and, and some of these other companies that you've studied as well, but how did you find the variances between leaders and their ability to communicate and what stuck out as like, you know, maybe the, the best leader that communicated the bestly and like, why was that versus the worst? Yeah, I would I would say I'll, I'll highlight an underrated skill for leaders, right? Because sometimes if you were to ask like a kid, let's say you ask like my eight year old, like or my seven year old, what what is a quality that makes a good leader? They they might talk about public speaking, they might talk about presenting, right? But I found that actually many of the best leaders within this story were great writers, um, and and writing as a leadership skill is something that I think we under index on, right? Because clear writing is clear thinking, and clear thinking can lead to clear leadership. And what I found over and over again, I had this like cool thing of I had all the emails from the company for like four years. Like I had this one executive who like shared all their emails and I had this like archive of their weekly newsletters for the company. And what I found is that in a lot of cases, these leaders maybe may not have been the most eloquent or elegant public speakers, but they were very good at communicating via the written word. And so they would write things out. There was this amazing note that Peter sent to the company after 9-11, like putting the tragedy into context, trying to tell people like what he was thinking. There were notes about like customer things. But I would say like the, the, one of the qualities that tied together the most successful leaders is a willingness to put their thoughts on paper as clearly as possible and communicate it to big groups of people. Mm. And it wasn't in speeches. It was in written form. And I found that to be a very common quality of many of the best leaders at the company. I wonder why. I wonder why that happened. Well, I think I think it's because if you're somewhat introverted, I mean I suspect one reason if you're if if you're somewhat introverted, it's probably easier to express yourself on the page than in front of a room of people. Um the other is that I think when you write something, you have to force yourself to really think about mm-hmm. it, right? And you really have to drill down and decide what you're going to say. And that is different from just riffing or ad-libbing or improving, right? And so I think part of it is that these people had a high bar for quality thinking and quality thinking can be expressed through quality writing. I wonder if it's, uh, you know, and, and I think, um, you know, tonality, I'm I'm just thinking of like non-verbal communication and how important that is as well. And I'm wondering if, and I, you know, expand on this thought for me, but I'm wondering if like, there is a, a sense of what, especially when you're trying to get a clear thought across where taking out, you know, somebody's tone or, or, or the way that they're speaking, or, or even when people, sometimes when people listen, cause they zone out or they're distracted or they're the versus if somebody's reading it, typically like it's harder to become distracted and you're not like judging the message based upon the tonality of the speaker either. Does that make sense? I think that's right. I think that's totally right. I think you're spot on. It's a message that would be received differently in written form than in than if somebody was communicating it verbally. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's awesome, man. Uh, you know, starting to close this out. What you know from everything that you've kind of, uh, and we've obviously given some 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 advice or some perspective already. But what would you give to somebody who's aspiring to be a great leader? from everything that you've learned and, and obviously the times change as well, but what, what, what's something that you would say to somebody who's aspiring to be a great leader that just doesn't even know where to start? It's, it's a wonderful question. And I, I, uh, let me, let me add an important disclaimer before I answer. And the disclaimer is this, uh, I've had the privilege of studying leaders in many different contexts, right? I've studied leaders in science and I've studied Elon Musk. 
I've studied leaders in ancient Roman politics, and I've studied leaders who are at the at the frontiers of technology. And I think one of the things to remember is like, you know, there 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 there's only some common traits, but a lot of what leadership is is contextual, right? Leadership in the military is different than leadership in a nonprofit, right? One thing though that ties together a lot of the people that I have studied closely is uh, a, a lengthy reading list. Um, uh, you know, it, it's kind of, it's like, there aren't, like, you could look at somebody like a, a Jack Welch and an Indra Nooyi or a Jeff Bezos or a Warren Buffett or an Oprah Winfrey. And like, there might not be many things that they have in common in terms of their leadership style or even their leadership philosophy, but they've all read a metric ton of books. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, or they've listened to them if they prefer audiobooks, right? You will almost always find that the people who are at the top of an, any organization are voracious readers. There is a high correlation there. And it's not an accident because the truth is you can learn a lot, whether you're reading novels or reading business books about who people are and how they work and about human psychology and about how to run a business and about all the specific business skills that are required for people to learn. When I, one of the things that I happened when I was interviewing all the people I interviewed is I found out that like to a person, they were all super widely read, like even more widely read than I would have imagined. And I, I would say that like, one of the best things that somebody that's aspiring to leadership could do is learn to spend some time every morning or night in the company of good books about past leaders. You will learn a lot. And there, there's a whole lot in those volumes that can help you on your road, on, on the path that you're on. Man, I really appreciate that answer. And, and it's an answer that uh, surprised me initially, but makes a lot of sense to me now that I think about it. Um, you know, I've had my, my head in books for, for, a little while now, not my whole life by any means. And the more I've just become more and more addicted to, to getting my nose into books, but books that I care about. And I think the one thing that you're, you're speaking of, especially when it comes to books is that there's no one, there's never going to be one answer. And we all, uh, we all walk this different path on the earth. And, you know, we've had billions and billions of people walk the earth and no two people have walked the same path. So the best chance of maximizing your decision making, your you know, in, bettering your skills, uh, gaining more more um, wisdom, is by gaining more perspective, right? And just that's right. And it's like great leadership. Uh, a lot of times, it's that collaborative mindset, right? It's like gather a th if you gather ten perspectives and you gather a thousand perspectives. You're gonna make a better decision with that thousand perspectives than you would with that ten perspectives. More, more times out of not, uh, you know, nine times out of ten. So it's yeah, I, I think that you know again the concept of this podcast, the concept of of anything on social media now, it's it's be the best judgment for you know be the best judger for yourself. Filter out what's useful to you, what's not useful to you, and, and I think that's just such a great important um, character trait of, of becoming, especially in the early stages of leadership, but, but even, even, you know, leaders who are, are excelling at leadership, I, like you said, they're all still reading books. They're all still open to learning. Right. That's right. And I think the other thing that you said is it's about multiplying the number of perspectives you have. There's probably no more efficient way to do that than a book. Right. Um, and I, I, it's one of the things that I think binds all of the great leaders I know is just that they are, endlessly they always have their nose in a book awesome any any oh, have, i feel like as i'm asking this question i already know the answer but any one book that you would recommend 
Oh, I mean, I look, my list is like a mile long, right? Um, I would, I would argue, oh man, it, that's a really tough one for me. Cause I think it depends a lot on where the person is like with their life and everything else. Um, I would, I would say one of my favorites just cause of how good it is and how it presents a very interesting portrait of leadership is the power broker by Robert Caro. It's a big book and it's about Robert Moses who sort of crafted modern New York the way we know it. It's a complicated book. He's not a totally lovable figure. And, and, and there's a lot of stuff in there that I probably hope never to emulate at the same time. It is a case study in power and how power operates. And it's super, super interesting and incredibly well-written and thorough. Cool, man. Um, yeah, I'll write that in the show notes. Where can people learn more about you? Sure. So all my books are available on Amazon and you know everywhere else books are sold. Um, I'm on. I'm probably most active, though not <laughs> far from being the most active on Twitter, and uh, where I'm just at Jimmy A Sony. And then my website is just JimmySony.com. People can look me up and send me a shout. And that's uh, Sony S O N N I, and I'll put it in the show notes as well. Awesome. S O N I one one N not two. Oh, sorry. S O N I. Thank you for correcting me. Yeah. <laughs> but I'll throw that in the the show notes as well. And for anybody who wants a good book to read, you can jump on his website. And I know I'm going to pick up your book as well, and and uh, you know do some reading. Uh, any final words? We'll close this out. No, I just really appreciate you diving into this topic. Like it, you know, leadership is this is this amorphous thing, and it's good that you are like asking hard questions about it, that you're interrogating it in a serious way, that you're looking at all these like different angles of it. Cause it's not one thing. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I, and I really appreciated the chance to reflect on it with you in this context. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. I appreciate that, man. I, I just try, I try to keep one thing in mind um, that whatever answers you give me are, are okay. And it's not like this. And, and, and like, if, if, if I brought somebody on here that was like preaching the preach and had like very definitive answers, I, I probably not air the episode, right? But mm. for, for for when people come on here and the first thing they try to preface every answer is like, well, you know, like this is just from, you know, my experience and what do I, like that to me is leadership as well, right? Because the leader mm. that just thinks he knows everything is the one that runs it everything into the ground too. So um, mm. I, I, I really appreciate that, man. And, and until, you know, next time, everybody that's listening, I hope you got some value out of this and, and we'll see you next time on the Captain's Mindset Podcast. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Captain's Mindset Podcast. We hope you found value in our discussion of leadership and personal development. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and leaving us a review. Your feedback helps us improve the show and reach more listeners. Remember, everyone has the potential to be a leader in their own life. Keep working on developing a captain's mindset and leading with purpose and intention. Join us next time for more insights and tips on how to become the best version of yourself. And until then, keep navigating through the ups and downs of your life with a captain's mindset and always steer towards becoming the best version of yourself. Become the captain of your own life.